Uh, in just a moment, I'm going to ask Kali to pray. Uh, and um, before we do that, I just want to kind of set up the tableau, the tableau of our meeting or our, our message. This morning is Palm Sunday, as Luke reminded us. It's the day uh, when Jesus publicly revealed himself to Israel as the Messiah. Uh, I grew up in a church, maybe some of you guys did, where we got little palm branches and waved them, and I'd love to do that some Sunday. Um, and uh, it, it can be a joyful celebratory time. There's a, as we'll, we'll look at Palm Sunday in scripture, um, there's a bittersweet reality to it, though, that, that as I went through this passage and thought about that, I thought about the the meaning of those joyful shouts and those palm branches, it, it became a little bit more dimensional than I remembered as a kid. But we're also starting today the book of Romans. And starting the book of Romans on Palm Sunday might seem odd, but I hope you'll see as we go along that there's a clear connection. And the book of Romans is going to be a book we're going to be in for a long while. We're going to have different mini-series that will jump in and out of it, so it's not going to be the only thing we're going to preach on, but it's a, it's a really important and wonderful book. It's, it's acclaimed as the greatest of Paul's letters by pretty much everyone who studies and reads and scriptures as theologians and pastors. Some people, not a few People would say it's the greatest letter book of the Bible. Of course, those are arguable as trying to choose between your favorite kids. Um, but the, Romans plums the depths of our, of our desperate and horrible predicament that we're often, even as believers, very blind to as a race of people. Like no other book I know, and, and, and it also plums the depths of how God has accomplished the rescue and the solution for us in our horrible predicament in a way that's unparalleled. And the surprising thing is though, for a book like this, is that it has little to say about exactly why it is written. Other letters like Galatians, Colossians, Corinthians, you can see through the letters Thessalonians a, a clear response to some need or needs going on in the church. This letter doesn't really make any significant mentions of any needs like that. But I also think that's part of its beauty. Romans is not better or more Holy Spirit filled than another book. But what's unique about Romans in the letters of the New Testament is it's not reactive. It's not reacting to something outside. It's active. It, way to put it is it generates its own momentum. With, it, it doesn't have any outside job to do, but look at Jesus Christ and look at him very fully look at him very comprehensively. And so Romans is, is, is kind of a systematic theology almost. I mean, there's, there's many subjects in Romans that aren't covered. End times is not exhaustively covered. Marriage and family is not exhaustively covered. Although it does touch on human sexuality right away, most of Romans moves very logically through a, a, Christ, a Jesus Christ-centered unpacking. And it, it goes like this. It moves from our problem and God's wrath for our sin to our common condemnation due to our sin and God's wrath to the futility of God's commandments, though they're holy, to, to save us from his judgment. And then it begins to present the solution that God brings in Jesus Christ. The forgiveness he brings, the redemption, the purchasing that he makes for us by his blood, the free gift of righteousness, the status of perfection, that we don't have inherently in ourselves, but Jesus does that he gives us as a gift and, and how this free gift opens up all these other gifts from Jesus Christ. Our, our union with Christ 
in his death and his resurrection makes us new people, Romans explains. Now, new people now, not just when Jesus comes and completes the process of our rescue, but even now we are made new and set free to follow him, even imperfectly, but still truly to follow him. Romans unpacks the liberating power of the Holy Spirit who changes us, indwells us, strengthens us, unites with our spirit so that we cry out with him, Abba, Father, the spirit of adoption that we share with, his, that we share with the spirit through the son who's always been a son. And, and then Romans caps that front section with the sovereignty of God in the world, in Israel, in, in choosing us and in keeping us until the end. That's what the letter of Romans is about. And again, because it's not addressing a specific concern, it can lay these things out in very focused and thorough ways. But there is one theory about why Romans was written that is so beautiful that I, I encountered as I prepared that I, I want to share it. It's a theory, but it's, I believe it's a, a, a good, wholesome theory. And it's not a dumb theory. I mean, there's some game to it. You know, Romans was probably written in the early 50s A.D., so just maybe not even 20 years since Christ was crucified. It was written by Paul, obviously, but it was probably written by Paul while he was living with the Corinthians and teaching them a lot of the things in this book. And during this time, though, Paul was aware of significant threats to his life. He was on most wanted lists to be murdered. And it has been proposed that Paul wrote Romans as a means to preserve for the infant church and for all future generations of the church, the gospel in its fullness that God had proclaimed to him. The idea being that this was a, written, a letter written so it would be available. The gospel, the truths that God had put in Paul's heart when he revealed Christ to him would be available when he was killed. It's almost like a last will and testament idea that he'd leave for the church. Now, Paul's martyrdom would actually take place much later in Rome, ironically. But the idea that, that this book, Romans, is sort of a magnum opus, motivated by his desire to leave behind the greatest gift he could to the church is both beautiful, and it's actually functionally what has happened. I mean, that, that, that's what happened. We, we have this book. We sit here 2,000 years later, able to look at the majesty of the gospel as Paul saw it in a way that is probably unparalleled in all the letters. So with at least the knowledge that at least the Holy Spirit knew that we would have this book, we know that this book was written for this church and a gift to Living Hope Community Church, just as it's been a gift to all churches throughout history. So I'm gonna dive in with the very short passage we're gonna cover this morning, along with a Palm Sunday narrative that we'll bring in a little bit. I'll, I'll read that. And then after I'm done reading that, I'd like Holly to come up and pray for the message proper, okay? All right, brothers and sisters, these are the very words of God. I'm gonna read Romans 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh 
and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our Father, there is none like you. And this day as we celebrate Palm Sunday, reminded that you came for us. And oh, how we need for you to come for us again and again and again. And you do. So we are here for you, Jesus, worthy of every breath we breathe. And would you fill us again with wonder this morning and as we walk out this holy week, lifting our gaze tenderizing our hearts and piercing our ears to hear your voice because we are desperate for you to come for us again and make us know it down to our bones that you come again and again and again to fill us and revive us and rejuvenate and convict and give unspeakable. Um, So we look to you in faith, in hope, in love, in anticipation for what you will give us because you give good gifts to your kids always. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for that prayer. Holly, I I just couldn't imagine a prayer. I mean, I almost want to just say there, we're done. Uh, And not because only of the prayer, but what you said dovetails so, it is is this message. I mean, that prayer preached to me as as I'm trying to gather confidence that the Lord is here working. And he is here. You know, he loves his church because you don't know this message. He didn't read this or work on this with me this but he knows, and uh, that prayer was, I hope you will see, and I hope everyone will see that what Holly prayed is already, what, the answer to Holly's prayer, I, I trust, has already been worked in, in my imperfect preparation and heart and mind as we go. What a gracious God to husband us this morning. Can we just go back one slide, Jay? So our message this morning is the God who offers himself to us. The God who offers himself to us. There's Holly pray, the God who comes to us, and he comes to us to offer himself to us. So we're going to walk by this text uh, just for a few moments, and then we'll go in Palm Sunday. So moving forward, thank you, Jay. Verse one, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Right from the outset, Paul announces himself, and he announces himself as a servant. It's the first thing he says about himself. I 
am a servant. Paul has a job for someone else. He's not here for himself. He's not here for his own glory. He doesn't have his own agenda. He's not his own boss. He's under the authority of someone else. Jesus Christ. And and note that Paul calls himself someone who's called. He's called to be an apostle. He was called. He didn't go looking for it. He didn't apply for it. He was called. And so not only does that mean that Paul's a servant, but he didn't go looking to be a servant. God had it in his heart that he wanted to get something done. God initiated with Paul what he wants to initiate through Paul. He wants a job done, so he calls Paul. He makes him an apostle, which literally means sent one. That's what that word means in Greek. It means sent one. The name itself is a humble title for as majestic as these apostles could walk before the Lord with miraculous powers and witnessing Jesus Christ risen from the dead and the authority that they did have over the whole church and still have through these letters. They still rule for Jesus Christ through their writings. But the the name is a very humble name. It's sent one because the name refers not to the person, but it makes you think, who sent them? Who sent them? Somebody sent them. So I want you to hear right at the outset, the God-oriented, God-initiated, God-momentum, God-driven reality here, right at the start. God picked somebody, he made him a servant, guy wasn't looking for God, he changed him, and he sent him to us. He sent him to us. And Paul explains that, that calling, he explains the job he didn't apply for, and how the job interview went. He, in Acts 26, explains he was a zealous Jewish leader. He was essentially, we, we would look at him as an intensely religious person, but akin to the kind of re- religious rigidity that we might see or think of in the Taliban. And indeed, he was, he was kind of a terrorist. He, was, he says to himself, he was violently terrorizing the church He was arresting, persecuting, throwing in prison Christians. He was approving Stephen as he was burned at the stake. Paul was there pleased with it all all happening. And on his way to Damascus to do more of that stuff, he is struck to the ground by a beam of light that surrounds him and all his companions. And he's he's literally mic dropped to the ground. And he sees a, a light over him that's brighter than the sun. And actually he's blinded, whether by the light or by God's just internal working. He can't see after this. And according to Paul's own testimony, Jesus Christ appears to him before he is blinded. The risen Lord, which is a qualification to be a real apostle, capital A, you have to have seen the risen Lord. And the risen Lord comes to Paul and shows up before him. And Paul recalls what happened this way. We all fell to the ground, him and his whole company of soldiers. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads, which, which kind of means you're damaging yourself. And then Paul asked, who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you 
as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What God commanded to Paul, he gave to Paul. Paul was never the same from that moment on. His life was turned completely upside down. His heart was changed. The people that he'd ravenously been trying to kill, he would leave this meeting with Jesus, living his life for and being willing to die for. And this is why Paul calls himself a sent one. He didn't look for it. It came to him. He was called to testify to someone. Someone who wants to be revealed to us. Someone who wants to offer himself. Not just to Paul, but to others. Jesus Christ says, I want to turn hearts away from Satan back to God. To give them forgiveness and grant them a life of holiness. So Paul, I'm setting you apart to go and do this in my name. I'm gonna give you power. So Paul says he was set apart for the gospel of God. Most of you probably know gospel simply means good news. God had news he wanted to reveal to the whole world, so he appointed these sent ones, these apostles who could testify with their own eyes, their own life experience, seeing and knowing Jesus. Not taught from someone else, not seminary, not parents who raised them in the faith. They were the primary source. They were with Jesus, touched his hands, saw his face. And this is what Paul spent his whole life doing until the day he was beheaded, penniless and considered a fool by the powers that murdered him. But do you know what? God wanted to reveal himself through Paul. God wanted to offer himself to the world through Paul and his apostles. And he has done just that. He has done what he said he would do. All over the world, for 2,000 years, billions of people have been hearing the words of Paul in the name of Jesus. And surely millions this very day are listening to the good news about Jesus through Paul. His ministry continues because it's God's ministry. And God established it and God promised it would be successful. What about this good news? Paul says in the next verse, which he promised, that is God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son. Paul says the good news about Jesus was promised beforehand. It's a little ironic. I have news to share. It's not, in a sense, new news. Even though Paul was sent to bring good news, something about Jesus, God says, has always been promised, has already been promised. For thousands of years, before the Father sent the Son to earth, before the Son called Paul to proclaim him and offer him to the world, for thousands of years, God promised him. 
God promised this son. If you were here during our Advent season, you might remember that we spent week after week after week exploring the Old Testament scriptures that pointed to Jesus. Just a brief summary. We saw in Genesis 3, God promised to send a seed of the woman who would crush Satan. We saw in Genesis 49, God promised he would send a ruler of the nations who would come from Judah's line. In Psalm 2, in Psalm 110, God promised a righteous branch would come from David's descendants who would save his people and who would be their very righteousness. It's what? It's just the wind? Okay. Okay, thank you. Just don't want it to be a distraction. Because this is actually a really important part. In, Gen- in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, God promises his son and, and, and his appointed Lord would be both a priest and a king to rule the world. In Jeremiah 23 and Isaiah 11, God promises a righteous branch from David's line who would save his people and would be their actual righteousness before God. In Micah 5, God promises to send from eternity past a shepherd for Israel who will be their very peace. And centuries before the first Christmas, God promises to make his birthplace in the city of Bethlehem. In Daniel 9, around 538 B.C., God promises an actual date for the Messiah's appearing and intersecting, that date intersects exactly with Jesus appearing and God promises the Messiah will be cut off and that following that cutting off, that Jerusalem will be destroyed. That was promised in 538 BC. In Zechariah 9, God promises the Messiah would appear to Jerusalem in gentleness, riding on a donkey, fulfilled on this day. We commemorate his Palm Sunday. In Isaiah 53, written around 700 BC, God promises to put the Messiah to death for the sins of the people and raise him from the dead. There is so much more we could say, and we did. We spent four weeks going over these scriptures, and we didn't even get to them all. But this is just some of what Paul has in mind when he says the gospel of God was promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures. And brothers and sisters, in a time when so much is shaking in the church, all across the world, especially in the West, when so much is shaking, listen to me for yourselves. Listen to me for your children. God needs you to know that this is true. And he has provided credible evidence through his word, through hundreds of years of prophets who gave their lives, who many of whom died giving their lives to say these things. There is a Messiah. He is coming. He will come like this. You must recognize him when he comes. Your eternal life depends on it. God isn't playing games with the world. He has invested hard to get this message to straying, fleeing, rebellious humanity to stop them from running into destruction and to say, listen, I am serious. I am going to give prophets over to death 
to get this message to you. And he didn't start that with Paul. He started that centuries earlier. If you want evidence of a supernatural God who has authored a book full of supernatural writings from his very own spirit, through people, but from him, Paul says right here, remember, this was all promised beforehand through his prophets. Promised beforehand so that when it happens, you could know it has credibility. It's not being invented from scratch. It's been around for centuries, this gospel. God has been offering himself to us for millennia. He's given us these promises for centuries. He's spoken to the prophets, says Paul. They have written what Paul calls holy scripture. It's not just any scripture. It's writings that are set apart. That's what holy means. It just means these are different. This book is different. It is not like any other book. It is man written, but God breathed. God breathed. And that sets it apart from any other book. So Paul is saying, listen, I'm not inventing something. I'm not starting something new. I come in a long line of sent ones, a long line of people who for centuries have been offering God to you or to humanity, to people. Because as Holly prayed, it's the whole point of this message, this is the nature of God. He offers himself. He comes to us. He reveals himself to people who have rebelled and don't want him and he keeps pursuing them so that he might have mercy on them. So I'm gonna have more to say about the rest of this passage next week as we move into the resurrection as that passage brings the resurrection right into the very first verses of Romans. But I want to ask us now what I asked at the beginning, what does this idea that God offers himself comes to us have to do with Palm Sunday? And you might know the answer at this point. It, it isn't exactly rocket science. What does the idea that God offers himself to us have to do with Palm Sunday? Well, let's look briefly at Luke's recording of that famous day from Luke 19. I do have this one. There it is. Thanks, Jay. Speaking of Jesus, Luke says, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And they were untying the colt. And its owner said, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they were fine. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks or coats on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the disciples in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. 
some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Many of you are familiar with the contours of this story. Luke read it to us earlier, but briefly let me try to summarize uh, some of the background contours. After centuries of messianic prophecies, many of which we just reviewed, after centuries of that, Jesus lands on earth sent by the Father and after about 27 or 30 years, he begins his ministry. And up until that very day of Palm Sunday, Jesus had been preaching and teaching invincible wisdom for three straight years in Judah. Throughout that time, he uses scripture with authority that no one is used to in Israel. He answers every accuser and sends them away humbled. No one in a position of power or rulership has ever been able to refute him in any of his interactions for three years. Jesus has been performing miracle after astounding miracle for three straight years. He's healed every kind of disease every kind of disorder. He's cleansed countless demonically oppressed souls. Jesus has spent three years telling storms to stop and they stop, telling the blind to see and they see, telling the deaf to hear and they hear, telling the lame to walk and they walk. He's himself walked, but walked on water to the terror of his disciples. He's raised at least three dead people back to life with a word He's turned prostitutes into saints and tax collecting thieves into devout disciples who give half their wealth to the poor. Jesus has fulfilled prophecy after prophecy concerning the Messiah. He's a descendant of David of the tribe of Judah. He was born exactly where Micah said the Messiah would be born. He came to Israel exactly when Daniel said the Messiah would come time-wise. He's doing and teaching in in word and in miracle, all the things the Messiah would do. And though never as greatly publicly as he has on this day, in many ways through those three years, he has made clear, certainly to his closest friends, but to others as well, that he is the Messiah. And now after all of this, he directs the fulfillment of Zechariah 9 perfectly. Get the donkey, it's time. Zechariah 9 needs to happen. We're, we're going full public in a way we never have before. Zechariah 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Jesus knows that he is fulfilling messianic prophecy. He sent for that donkey. And God doesn't do anything to stop him. God isn't offended. God wrote this prophecy through Isaiah and now Jesus is fulfilling it perfectly. And God is fine with that because this is his Messiah. And God will be true to his word and protect his word. And Jesus has come to fulfill it. So he rides on a humble animal. The crowd rejoices and shouts, chants, 
the blessing of Psalm 18, a blessing meant for the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a messianic psalm. They know what that chant means, and so do the Pharisees. And this crowd is big. We see the disciples shouting in this story. In other stories, you see a lot of people coming from the Passover who are part of this huge crowd, apparently. Now, Jesus has spent three years again. He spent three years slowly and surely proving and revealing his identity to his people. And today, this day, Palm Sunday, it is coming to a climax. Today, it's not about simply teaching. It's not about simply doing miracles. It is saying to everyone who will listen, I am the Messiah. I have come. I have come. I am offering myself to you. I am offering myself to you on this day. Without any apology or qualification, Jesus is publicly revealing himself to all as the son of God, the king of Israel and the rightful ruler of all nations. And this is the connection between our passage in Romans and Palm Sunday. God is the God who offers himself to you. God is the God who offers himself to you. He is a God who reveals himself. He is a God who makes promises and keeps them and fulfills them so that you might know who he is. He is a God who then sends sent ones so that other people will know who he is. He is a God who pursues and calls out and shows himself and appeals to all to turn to him and receive him because he offers himself to you. He's been doing it for millennia. He's still doing it today. He's doing it for us this morning again. Maybe for some of you, you're realizing for the first time, is God offering himself to me today? Is he saying to me today, here I am. I am your God. Will you have me? Will you have me? Will you receive my son as your loving Lord? Will you follow him as your king? He's come for you. Will you trust him as your savior today? Will you listen to him? Will you, through my grace, obey him? He knows not perfectly, but he means it. Will you have him? Will you have him? Because, brothers and sisters, the one being offered is God. The one being offered is a king. The one being offered to you is a ruler. And, and if you will have him, if you will have him, you must have him as your king. You must have him as your king. You can't only have him as your savior. You must have him as your king. That's how he offers himself to you. Not your tool, not the one to be shaped into your wishes the way you want him to be. He knows that won't even be good for you. He didn't make you for that. He made you for the best and he's the best. And so he offers himself to you and he says, will you have me?
But listen, you can't just have him as your king. You can't just take him as your ruler. You're not able. You have to also take him as your savior. See, he has to cover your offenses against him. He has to take the punishment for what you've already done in rebellion against him your whole life and still do each day as a believer walking. He has to take that upon himself. You can't just take him as a ruler and a, and a king. You have to take him as your savior. He has to change your heart. He has to give you the power to follow him. And so he says, will you take me? I offer myself to you as not just your ruler and your king, but as the very savior of your soul. Will you believe me to do that? I've, I've proven myself through centuries and through many people you know that I do that. Will you believe me to be able to do that? Maybe for the first time today, maybe for the 7,000th time, you're going to get back off the mat. Because I have to get back off the mat many mornings. But that's what he does. He offers himself to you today. And he says, you have to take me as the king of your life if you really want to be honest about this. And I'll be a good king to you. I'm gentle. I'm humble. I'm patient. I'm forgiving. I'm merciful. I know it's hard to follow me because I'm also a savior, see? I'll give you the power you need to follow me. I'll change you. I'll be with you every step of the way. I'll be your savior. So he offers himself to you this morning as savior and king. And, and if you're a believer, he offers yourself, to, as Holly said, he comes and offers himself to us again every day. That's why Jesus says, as a disciple, we take up our cross every month, every week. We take up our cross every year. No. When do we take up our cross? Every day. Isn't it nice that we live day by day? Isn't it such a gift to put our head on the pillow and say, Lord, I got to start again tomorrow because this day stunk. <laughs> stunk. Friday stunk for me. I had sermon to work on. I couldn't stop thinking about distracting things, not just church things. I kept thinking about music and music equipment. And I'm, I'm trying to focus, but my, my brain is just adulterous. <laughs> and I'm just thinking about music equipment all day long. It stunk. I, I did fight. I fought. I fought with scripture. It just wasn't the best day. I went to bed. That was a pretty bad day. Walking with Jesus. I woke up Saturday morning. He was right there. Let's start again, Albert. Let's start again. I could tell. Help. Help. Because, you know, I was asking for help. I was asking for help Friday. Lord, this is really hard. I'm really stinking at this today. I need to work for my church, work for all you guys. <laughs> I got everything to account for these pe people before you. I'm thinking about music equipment. God, help me. I fought, but <laughs> Saturday morning, I wake up with, with help. With help. I just, let's start again. Take up your cross, follow me. It wasn't perfect. It was a much better day. I got some of you guys to pray for me. But that's what he's like. He offers himself. So God is speaking. He's revealing his offering. But the, the trouble is it doesn't mean that people will receive him, right? Palm Sunday reveals that really, really sadly. The rulers hear, the Pharisees hear this chant from the people. They know exactly what the chant means. They don't really want a king. These Pharisees and many of the people, they don't really want a ruler. They want 
expediency. They want independence from Rome. They want political freedom. And they want to be able to rule their own nation. They want financial prosperity. They want wealth and easy living. And so they're rejoicing because they think Jesus is going to do right away all these amazing messianic things. He's going to establish Israel as the center of world power. And he's going to, the king's going to rule from Israel and bless Israel with all the good things that they were supposed to be blessed with if they'd followed the Lord as he promised them. And so they're looking at Jesus not as a savior from their sin. They're looking at him as one to save them from their discomfort. They don't see a need. Many of these people don't see a need for personal salvation from their own sin. I wrote it on Facebook last night. They're like CNN and Fox, right? On CNN, you read about how horrible all the conservatives are. I mean, that's all CNN is. You just pull it up. It's like another article about another conservative who's hollow, shameless, evil, and awful. Then you go to Fox, And you read all the same things, except it's different names, but it's all the same stories about how evil and awful all the liberals are, how terrible the Democrats are. So you go to Fox and you hear about how awful the liberals are. You go to CNN, you want to hear how awful the conservatives are. There you go. Just listen to an echo chamber for you. And Jesus says, look at me. Look at me. I love you, but you're all awful. And you're all in deep trouble for how you're treating me and how you're treating each other. So these people rejoicing over him now, they're nationalists, they want a liberator, they're financially savvy, they want wealth, they, they want comfort. They want an immediate solution to their temporary pain that they think is rooted in their circumstances and in Rome and how they're being treated, that Jesus knows their deepest pain is rooted in their rebellion against God and their refusal to have him as their king, their refusal to take him as their ruler. And in a few days, many of these people in the same crowd who are saying, Hosanna, the son of man, Jesus. In a few days, there'll be another crowd And do you know what they'll be saying? Crucify. Crucify him. Crucify him. He's not giving us what we want. Put him to death. Hate him. Get rid of him. Joker. Fool. Powerless. Crucify him. And Jesus knows this. On Palm Sunday, he knows this. He's looking at these people chanting his name and he knows what they're going to be chanting in seven days or or five days. So Luke goes on. Listen to what Luke says. This is Palm Sunday, brothers and sisters. This is the day of branches and happy, happy mornings at church when you were a kid growing up. Here's the rest of the day. Are you ready for the rest of the day? And when he drew near and saw the city... He wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children. 
within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Because you were playing games with your God. Because you were looking to use him. Now, it says Jesus wept, but it might be truer to use the word wail. Jesus was wailing. The word here is used for the weeping at the death of Jairus' daughter in Mark 5, when all of Jairus' family were distraught beyond care, and they're wailing. So Jesus knows what's in their hearts. And he knows that his father has been offering himself to these people for centuries. And now he's offering his son. And he knows that many of them don't really want him. They don't want a God. They don't want a king. They want someone to serve them. The irony is Jesus has actually come to serve them. They just don't want that kind of service. They think the problem's with others outside themselves. So Jesus knows what this will mean for them eventually if they don't turn, if they don't see this. And he's overcome with grief and he wails for them. And when Jesus says the people did not know the things that make for peace, he doesn't mean they didn't have the data. Like he, isn't, he doesn't mean that they, they don't know in the sense that they don't have the information they need. He means, he's using that word know like he uses, I mean, he doesn't mean it the same way, but it's similar to the idea of intimacy, to know a man or know a woman. He means they're not close to, they're not open to the intimacy that you might have with a friend. They didn't know the time of their visitation. They didn't know the things that would make for peace in the sense that they would not open themselves up to the things that would really make for peace. They would not repent and believe. In other words, they wouldn't have Jesus as king, not really, and not as savior, not really. His anguish is huge. You know, our church is, is a reformed church. We believe that God actually has to, we'll talk about this in a second, he has to change our hearts to make us receive him. But there can be this real awful straw man about this kind of doctrine, that God is actually indifferent to the people that don't come to him. That couldn't be further from the truth. That God's up there like, I choose you, I choose you, I choose you. Is there a mystery to it? Because I believe God has to change us to, to make us receive. We'll see that in a second. But if, if you think that for an instant that God is indifferent to people who reject him. See Jesus wailing, wailing. His anguish echoes the words that he'll, he'll, it's still in his heart. A few days later, he'll say this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing he didn't say, I was not willing to save you. No, he says, you weren't willing to have me. And I wanted to gather you together. He says, how often I have longed. He's speaking from his godness. He's saying, Jesus, the majestic Christ is saying, for centuries, 
I have wanted to gather you. I've seen you for centuries, Israel, and I've wanted to gather you. And here I am coming to you to offer myself to you, and you won't have me. So look, what can I do? Your house is left to you desolate. Jerusalem. is in a sad place. And in AD 70, what Jesus says will come true. The whole city will be destroyed. The temple will be raised. No stone will be left upon another. If you believe Josephus, the slaughter is in the millions. And that is the, just the, the physical part of it. There's a spiritual sadness to, for all who reject this offer of God as savior and king. Because that physical death, it, it points to a spiritual death that never ends. So what do we do with all this? I ask myself as I'm looking at this crowd, am I different than this crowd? Am I, can I really say I'm like better than this crowd? Better than the people of Jerusalem? I mean, God is still speaking his word to me. Am I hearing well, I, I don't believe I'm any better than the superficial people in this crowd who wanted God's stuff but didn't want God. And I believe this, apart from his grace, I don't believe any of us are better than this. So I think there are three lessons from the passage today and I'm gonna try to run through them. First, Thank God for anything in you that wants him. Thank God for anything in you that wants him. Because that's not naturally you. It's not naturally me. A, a few days after Palm Sunday, Jesus would get down on his knees and start to wash the disciples' feet. Remember that? That'll happen on Thursday night, I think, this week. And Peter, when Jesus comes to do that, he recoils in revulsion. You'll never wash my feet. And he's trying to be kind. And I know you honor Jesus, but he doesn't understand his problem. He doesn't understand how bad his heart is. In a few minutes, he'll deny Jesus after he tries to kill some guy for trying to arrest Jesus. He doesn't have a, a real clue of what Jesus came to do and what he needs. So he says, don't bother. And Jesus says, Peter, if I do not wash you, if I don't change you, if I don't cleanse you, you can have no part with me. If I don't wash you, you can't follow me. You can't be mine. I have to do something here. You have to let me do this, Peter. I remember that myself. I struggled for a little while when I was getting really close to God to, to follow him. And I, to want what he wanted out of my life, you know? No premarital sex, no getting drunk. I wanted to want those things, but man, I didn't. I didn't really want him. I wished I did, but I didn't. <laughs> My life proved it. He had to change me. Albert, if I don't cleanse you, you can't follow me. To a man named Nicodemus, Jesus says, very truly I tell you, Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Can you born yourselves again? 
Did you born yourself the first time? That's about how much of a chance you have to born yourself again is if you born yourself the first time. Jesus has to birth you again. He has to give us eyes to see him or we won't see. In John 6, the Lord says, everyone whom the father gives me will come to me. Absolutely. If the father gives you to me, you will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never drive you away. So if you're in this room this morning and you recognize Jesus as your king and your savior and you long for him to be the Lord of your life and you're seeking to follow him imperfectly as you, as you are, as you will until you see him face to face, that calls not for self-righteousness because you didn't make that happen. That calls not for self-congratulation or looking down on others who don't. It calls for humble gratefulness for his gift of giving you a heart that wants him. So thank him. If there's, if there's an ounce in you of wanting Jesus, it's from him. Thank him. Nurture it. Nurture it. And that brings me to my next point. Plead in faith every day for a heart that responds to him. Plead in faith. If you're not saved, plead in faith. If you're saved, plead in faith. Plead every day for a heart that will respond to him. Because we're dependent on God for both our new life and are continuing in that life, there, there is perhaps no greater prayer to pray for yourself and for myself than to continually ask the Lord, Lord, keep my heart receptive to you. Make my heart receptive to you. David had to pray this all the time. John Piper pleads daily what he calls David's IOUS. Some of you guys have heard this, the IOUS of the Psalms. I love it because IOU is easy to remember. So IOU, he throws one S on there. So Piper just takes four, four, four verses from the Psalms and he cries them out to God each morning. Incline the I, incline my heart towards your statutes and not toward dishonest gain. That's the I. The O, open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your law. Not boring things, not nothing, not hate it, not being different. No, wonderful. I might see your word as wonderful. You, unite my heart to fear your name. God, I got a divided heart. You want me to work hard and to be focused on your people. I want to think about amplifiers and guitar pedals. So God, please unite my heart. This is awful. Satisfy me with your steadfast love. Oh Lord, I know what it's like to enjoy you and I'm not really enjoying you and there's nothing better than enjoying you and I can't really follow you unless I really want to. So please, would you satisfy my heart with your love? Make me feel how much, how much, how good it is to follow you, how good you are. I-O-U-S. David prayed those things. He was saved. He, he was following God since a boy and he needed to ask God to do these things. So this prayer for responsive heart is so crucial. And it's implicit in the Lord's prayer, right? That we sp we're supposed to pray every day, give us our daily bread, which also says, lead us not into temptation. Lead us not away from you, but deliver us from evil. That means keep us with you. So however you might want to word it, brothers and sisters, we should all be seriously, meaningfully asking God every day for soft and responsive hearts to him. Put more gas in the tank again today, Lord, please. And listen, as you pray, remember what Holly said in her prayer, which was my whole sermon in microcosm. He is a good father. He longs to give what is best. He says, if you dads out there who are evil, love to give your kids good things, what a low bar he set for us, right? Hey, if you people who are evil know how to give good things, how much more will I give good things to you evil people? Like, that's amazing. Like, that's an amazing big tent invitation to trust that he's gonna be good to us. Lord, I, 
I need help, but I need my heart softened, but let, I really screwed up over there, so I don't think you're going to... Wait, where am I going to... You give good stuff to messed up people, to evil people. Yes, so ask in faith, even with a mustard seed of faith. Even with, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Expect his Holy Spirit to be at work, giving you a heart to him. Lastly, stay near. Stay near to these places where God offers himself to you all the time. Stay near to the places where God's always offering himself to you. And listen, I know, I know from my own experience, and I know from many experiences in this room, that there are seasons, sometimes very protracted seasons, where we just feel like we cannot sense God. And, and this isn't a recipe for never having those. I, I, we cannot always avoid those. There's, there's many reasons that, that, that could involve themselves in a, in a protracted season of not sensing God. But isn't it also true that sometimes we live in spiritual deserts like that, mainly due, or at least in part, to our own self-willed exile by just staying away from the places where God offers himself. And then we wonder why we're so malnourished. It's like we spend, you know, a year in the desert and we wonder why we're thirsty. If, if you want to see God, if you want to respond to his offering of himself, stay close to where he offers himself. So those are basic things. Where does he offer himself to us? Well, here, with each other. He offers himself among his people. Seek out frequent time with people who, who, who are really seeking Jesus, who really believe in him, who really want to obey him. And listen, both do that with both the living saints in the church, but also do it with dead people who can affect you through their old books and their old sermons. And listen, for over a month, I've been driving around in my car with George Mueller, who died in 1898. He's not in my trunk, okay? He, he's on my phone, on Audible. I have an autobiography of George Mueller. It's 15 hours long, and, I, and I, I have to listen slowly so I can make it long, you know? I've been in the car with him for a month. I've only gotten through three hours of it. But not every day, but many days I'm just listening to him tell me about miracle after miracle, like literal true miracles as he sought to lay his life down for the poor and the orphans in London in the 1800s. And God met him. And he did this for God's glory. It's a beautiful story. But he didn't do it just for them. He did it so they would see him acting. And so it's incredible. There is real miracle after real miracle after real miracle happening in his life as he lays his life down. And he just tells these stories for 15 hours. I just drive around listening to this pure, godly man of great piety who loved Jesus Christ. And it, it, it's the kind of thing where it's like, can I even see the Batman? <laughs> like, I've been with Jules Mueller today. I don't, <laughs> I'm not sure I, I want to go watch that. I mean, I'm just saying it affects me, you know? And, and I'm not saying necessarily don't see the Batman, please don't. I'm just talking about my own internal dialogue. My point is, we get affected by godly people. Their godliness rubs off on us. Their love for Jesus, their desire for him, it, it infects us just like the other stuff does. So stay around them, both the living and the dead. I'm, I'm nourished and changed by meeting with prayer, for prayer with the saints on Tuesday night. I come in dragging my tail. I leave most nights on a much better plane because I've just been with you guys praying, pouring out my heart. And I know that I have family here who pray for me, who care about me, who are a safe place. 
to unburden my conscience. And that's life-giving food for me. I need people. I feel like the guys in my DR groups, I'm always telling them like, I know I'm pastor, but I need to be able to be real. I feel like, you know, but it's true. Like I, I, we need people we can be real with, but we want people we can be real with who really love Jesus and who really love us towards him, right? And of course, you, you know these basic ones. We talk often about his word and prayer. I just want to keep appealing to you. Spend time daily in front of God, offering himself to you in his word. Offer himself to you in his word, he does. Spend time there and ask him to speak to you through things that are hard to understand because sometimes the Bible is and look expectantly for him too. But I've said it before, but it bears repeating. Listen, the longer I know Christians, the more I'm, I'm convinced at my core that there is a deep and clear connection between joy and growth and maturity and perseverance on the one hand in a Christian and the, amount, the, the, the life of devotion to his word and prayer that they maintain. I just can't get away from it. It's just true. It's, there's, there's exceptions. There are exceptions. But in the main, the general rule is that people who are seeking to give God time daily, meaningful time in prayer and the word are hanging on to him, are growing, are maturing, are hanging in there through a lot of pain, a lot of trial and a lot of joy. So I just exhort you, please don't neglect his word and in prayer daily. Please don't. Develop a simple plan for Bible reading. Make it as early as you can and simple plan for prayer. Make it as early as you can. Commit to be with him before you're dragged into every responsibility. If you can, if you can. I know sometimes when you guys get up at three in the morning, it's, it's more complicated. But, but listen, he honors the time you give him. Maybe not that morning, but eventually it catches up. He honors. You can't outgive him. If you give him time, if you give him attention, he'll just give you more back eventually. You reap what you sow. So give him that time before you're swept away by your screens. Don't we all just have a love-hate relationship with these screens, whatever they are? God, deliver us. His, his work, last thing, his work. Jesus reveals himself where he's at work. Where is he at work? Where is he at work? Go where Jesus is at work. Show up there. That's where he'll, he'll offer himself to you. You'll meet him there. Where is he at work? He's at work where he's always been. He's trying to build up his people. He's trying to care for them, love them, correct them. He's trying to build them up. He's trying to seek the lost. He's trying to seek those who don't know him to reach him. He's at work trying to get their attention and reveal himself to them. So he's trying to seek the lost in your orbit through you. We're not all evangelists like Luke, like Jacob necessarily. We all we all can ask God for opportunities, for open doors and for courage. That he would make it, open that door for us, Lord. I can't barge in like Luke might be able to. But would you, would you open a door for me that I can make it through for these people? He's, he's at work trying to care for the needy in your cities for his glory. He's at Dorcas. He's at Frederick Rescue Mission. I was at Dorcas <sighs> Yeah, I'll wait on that. Another sermon. So just give yourself to these places obediently and ask him to meet you there. 
Brothers and sisters, the Palm Sunday parades ends in Luke's chapter with, with weeping, with Jesus weeping. It's not a happy ending. But Jesus, he did not only have tears. He had determination. Those tears drove him to the cross. Those tears, that wailing, that weeping, that drove him to the cross. He set his face like flint towards that cross because he knew that the hardness in the hearts of that crowd could only be conquered by one thing, his blood. His blood. His blood not only forgives, but it changes. It gives us new hearts that won't just hear his offer, but will accept it. That included thousands in that city who were saved after Pentecost. And that included a murderous Pharisee named Paul who wrote the book we're looking at. Let's, let's close in prayer affirming that blood for us today. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your blood that forgives us and makes us new. We thank you so much that we care about you because it's only because you care about us. Keep us close to you, Lord. Lord, don't let us Don't let us deny the offer of yourself to us. Don't let us do that, Lord. Make our hearts soft or we'll be hard. Make our hearts soft or we'll be hard. And I pray for anyone in this room who doesn't know that they know you. I pray that today, Lord, would be the day of salvation, that they might hear you saying, I'm here, I offer myself to you. Will you have me as your king? Will you have me as your savior? Will you have me as your king? Will you have me as your savior so that you can receive me? And Lord, help us to do it every day. Help us to do it every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.